I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are getting Orca Aware for Orca Awareness Month. Plus a super exciting encounter with some northern resident killer whales. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. It is June, which means it's Orca Awareness Month. Hooray! Last year, for Orca Awareness Month in Episode 3, we gave a super glossy overview of all the orca ecotypes. But today we're going to look more into how did we even get to know that there were different kinds of orcas. Uh, We really take for granted how lucky we are about how much we know about them. Um, Mainly because of us and where we live, so much of the foundations of orca research has come from B.C., Um, It's easy for people in the rest of the world to make assumptions about other orcas or be frustrated about how how little we know about the other ecotypes in comparison to the ones that live off of the BC coast. Um, I know that I am, especially when I'm looking up finding news articles or something about the other kinds of ecotypes around the world that want to know more. And it's really hard and it's so easy for me to find out like super detailed information about the individuals living off of our coast. And sometimes I can't even find out how many uh, are in a group uh, in the Atlantic or somewhere. So I'm just really frustrated because I just want to know more about orcas. <laughs> or see our previous episode where I was also really frustrated because like I don't understand the type A's. You guys yes. just oh my don't, God. don't understand them. So much, so much drama about the type A's in our lives. And there's so many types in the type A's. Like they're not all one type. But... I know. Who named these things? <laughs> So we're going to be focusing today on sort of answering that question that Lindsay posed. Just like, how did we find out there were different types of orcas and why are the orcas in BC so well known? Because it has not always been that case. It's not as if this is something that has been going on for centuries of research here in British Columbia. In fact, in our parents' lifetime, the killer whales along BC's coast used to be shot at and encouraged to be shot at by the federal government of Canada. Woohoo! Oh, Canada. Uh, the States was doing it too. So, you know, just like <laughs> woohoo, North America. <laughs> but it's true. So back into the 1960s, killer whales were thought to be monstrous. I mean, basically take every wrong stereotype that you've ever heard about sharks or any other kind of like big predatory animal and apply them to killer whales. And that's how people thought about them in the 60s, because that's what they were. They were large, and they still are. They're still large predatory animals, but we know that there's so much more to them. And up until the 1960s, most of Western civilization, and I will be specific to that actually, because indigenous peoples along the Pacific Northwest have had various relationships with killer whales along BC's coast throughout their histories. And I am not in a position to understand or or know all of those stories. So I can only speak from sort of a colonist's perspective, but definitely the colonist perspective on killer whales in British Columbia up until the 1960s was, well, they're taking our fish, so let's shoot them. Great. All of that changed in 1964, which is when the first ever captive killer whale was captured. And to really, really put into perspective how terribly we were treating killer whales up until that point, it's not as though 
people went out in 1964 and decided, you know, those animals that we're shooting at, that the government has mounted a machine gun on that Gulf Island over there at to specifically shoot at these whales. Let's go catch one and like study it and put it in an aquarium and see if it's as monstrous as we think it is. No, 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 that's not what happened. They were out to try and kill a killer whale in order to then use the body as a life-size model for a sculpture. Thankfully, and you can learn a lot more about this in a number of books and news articles that have been written uh, about Moby Doll, which is the name of the first ever captive killer whale. Thankfully, the harpoon that was shot at the whale did not have a killing blow. And that twist of fate is what has brought all of us here today with our love of killer whales, regardless of where in the world you are coming from. Uh, that one missed shot really is where we can kind of trace the world's perception change on this animal too, which is crazy. So because the whale didn't die, and then because of the reactions to the other members in the whale's group, which what we would now know are its family members or its pod, the the hunters who were hired to catch the whale sort of made a judgment call to be like, huh, maybe we should study this animal because they're not like, I don't, I've never spoken to any of the people who were involved in Moby Doll's capture uh, directly, like from that, from that moment of that twist of fate. But in my mind, what I envision that like, if I had the mindset of someone in the 1960s, what we thought about killer whales, probably what they expected to happen if the animal wasn't killed immediately by the harpoon was like the other animals in the pod would turn on it and tear it apart. Right. And that is the exact opposite of what happened. In fact, the other animals in the group started calling to Moby doll, started trying to help Moby doll stay at the surface in order to be able to breathe more easily. Um, and so eventually Moby doll was moved to an open pen sort of like pseudo aquarium in the Vancouver Harbor and people came from literally all over the world to see him. Mm -hmm. It is a him, right? I'm just, I'm yes, getting everything. It is. Yeah. No, yeah, Moby Doll, it's confused because they thought that's why it's Doll. Exactly, and then they thought, I'm like, but wait, but the name is still, okay, yeah. yeah. So people came literally from all over the world to see him. And he, it, there, it, Moby Doll's story is... A positive and a negative. Obviously, what happened to him is not something that we would ever hope would happen to a wild animal. And he he probably did suffer and he did not live for very long, uh, just a, a few more months after his capture. But as martyrs go, I guess, if that's the word we want to use, being able to change an entire globe's perception of your animal through through sacrifice is a pretty phenomenal legacy that Moby Doll has left us with. And so through that perception change, people kind of caught killer whale fever and a lot of aquariums in, well, in North America and really all over the world started thinking, oh, well, maybe I should go and get myself a killer whale because they're not so scary. And in fact, they're really, really cool. And I want to learn more about them. And I want to show them to people in my in my city, in my province, in my state, whatever it is. 
So lots and lots and lots of people started showing up in Washington State and British Columbia trying to collect the killer whales along our coast. And the two federal governments, the United States and the Canadian federal governments, were okay with this at the time because based on all known Western knowledge, there were thousands of killer whales in BC. So like, cool, yeah, totally. You can have one. You get a killer whale. You get a killer whale. You get a killer whale. (laughs) (laughs) But after a few years of that, in 1970, the Canadian government started to think like, well, but like, are there thousands? How do we actually know that? And they hired... Dr. Michael Big to try and answer that question. Well, those hey, two that questions. name sounds familiar. <laughs> yes, spoiler alert. Dr. Michael Big is where we get the now newly named Biggs killer whales from, who were for many, many years, including when Dr. Big was studying them, known as transients. They are called Biggs in his honor. He was hired as the head of marine mammal research for what we now know as Fisheries and Oceans Canada, or the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And he was given the job of trying to conduct the first ever census for British Columbia's killer whales. Or, I mean, probably also for, like, any cetacean. There's <laughs> not a lot of sensing, censusing going on. Yeah, I remember from, like, historical records of whale abundance are usually from before the 70s are inferred from um, records of whaling stations, of how many whales were killed, not from actually how many whales were alive in the ocean. Yeah. Some flaws in our data. (laughs) Slightly, yes. (laughs) I can't possibly imagine what it would have been like to be hired to do that job and to try and like create from scratch for an animal we still knew very, very, very little about any kind of scientific method for counting these animals. But what Dr. Big decided to do first was send out 1,500... Nope, that's wrong. 15,000 surveys to people who spent their lives, either their livelihoods or their lives, on the water. So lighthouse keepers, fishermen, boaters, and other sort of well-known members of the BC Coast community. And he asked them to record all killer whale sightings on one day and just one day. So that obviously it would be, I mean, it's not impossible that people were reporting the same killer whale, but it would be, a that's a good place to start. He was real smart. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> the results of the questionnaire, which was taken on July 27th, 1971, showed that no, there were not thousands of killer whales. <laughs> Oopsies. <laughs> Oops. In BC's waters, at most, there were 350. So there needed to be some changes to the government's approach to killer whales. Obviously, this was a much smaller population, and there was an immediate hold or stop put on the capture of the killer whales. Um, the government of the United States followed suit just a couple of years later and everybody got on board with the idea that, well, we have learned that these animals aren't the monsters of the ocean that we thought they were and that we in fact made a really bad B-rated horror movie about. (laughs) (laughs) Side note. 
It's an interesting movie. It's called Orca, the Killer Whale. Maybe watch it. And because they're not sea monsters and they're not also plentiful to the point that we can just take as many as we want and put them in aquariums all over the world, we should dedicate some other effort to researching them in their in their natural environment. So Dr. Big and his colleagues spent most of the 1970s, and uh, this continues to this day, this research project, trying to learn everything that they could about the killer whales in British Columbia. They discovered the idea of photo identification through dorsal fin ID, which we now take not just for granted, like this is just something four-year-olds know when I end up talking to them about killer whales, and I'm not the one who told them, like just people know all over the world that you can tell killer whales apart by their dorsal fin and their saddle patch, the patch of gray behind their fin. But Dr. Big and his colleagues didn't know that. They had to figure that out. They also had to figure out that sort of within the scientific community, which side of the dorsal fin were they going to use to keep track of the whales? Because shockingly, just like if you sort of like bisected your face, you are not perfectly symmetrical same thing is true for a killer whale and their saddle patches can look like strikingly different left and right sometimes they can have like an open spock v shape on one side and then just like you know a more traditional little like typical closed saddle patch on the other and like well, well that's a totally different animal so all of these things all of these things nicks and scratches and and saddle patches and any other kind of identifiable mark were collected photographed and and collated together to become the longest ever study on any marine mammal and honestly of like most animals out there in the world they by tracking all of these animals they were able to identify year after year they were able to also start to see that there were different patterns in their travel and their relationships and their hunting strategies that's where we ended up with the idea of ecotypes because we could tell individuals apart if you can't tell individuals of a species apart you can't learn very much else about their behavioral ecology you can still learn a lot about their biology but their behavioral ecology is much, much harder to study. So we are indebted and always will be to Dr. Big. And that's why the Big's killer whales are named after him, because unfortunately he passed on much, much too early, um, long, long before he should have. And long, long before, uh, you know, there was so much more for him to learn about killer whales. He passed away on August. Nope. He passed away on October 18th, 1990, when he was only 51 years old from leukemia. And a very touching story that I had not heard before, actually, when researching for this podcast. His ashes were spread in Johnson Strait, uh, where you find a number of northern resident killer whales. And apparently more than 30 killer whales actually showed up during the spreading of his ashes, which is special. And feelings are hard to have now. <laughs> Yeah, but we are, we're so grateful to Dr. Big and we continue to be grateful to all of the other researchers who have come after him, who either worked with him or who have been inspired by him, who are continuing his legacy and doing crazy cool 
new research with killer whales. Sarah, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So a good place to find a list of a bunch of current research is, um, there'll be a link in the show notes, but it's to the wildwhales.org website, and it's a full list of cetacean and also turtle research in British Columbia, because lots of those happen at the same time. Um, So the world's longest continuous study of killer whales and one of the longest of any animal species has been happening in British Columbia for more than 50 years. And it's a huge cooperative effort between marine biologists at um, Fishers and Oceans Canada, the Vancouver Aquarium, the University of British Columbia, uh, the Center for Whale Research, Orca Lab, and a bunch of other institutions, smaller institutions on both sides of the Canada-US border. And so still photo ID is the core of the project. And that's how um, they're able to track the lives, the family relationships, the offspring, the behavior, the dialects, the vocals, all kinds of stuff um, of over 500 killer whales living along the British Columbia coast. So in addition to photo ID, they use acoustic analysis. Um, and that's how a lot of the groupings and like understanding of what group sort of spun off of what group is by um, understanding the changes in their calls. And then also analysis of DNA from skin samples. The other crazy cool thing that they have done with DNA, which again, we kind of take for granted with the animals that are swimming around in our backyards, they've done paternity testing Oh yeah, for <laughs> killer whales because of DNA samples. Because especially with the residents, though it is uh, thought to be true for most of the bigs as well, and we still don't really know about the offshores, uh, with the residents though, they do usually spend the rest of their lives with their mother after they're born the question of paternity becomes uh, a really big one, especially for the Southern resident killer whales with them being endangered and having such small population numbers. So that DNA testing has also meant that, you know, the killer whales can all go on Jerry Springer and be like, who's my daddy? (laughs) Yeah. And it also gives us a lot of insight into like, Oh, if this animal, like if this individual is the father with this mother, like obviously these groups at some point came together. So like you have a lot more understanding of intergroup dynamics. Yeah, and that is more important probably with the northern residents with such, like, they have over 300 animals. Like, uh, superpods for southern resident killer whales are common, um, so it's it's fairly expected that um, males from the different, the three different pods would be interacting with the females and, uh, and mating. But, like, with the northerns, it's much harder because there's less people watching them. And there's more of them, so that's much more important to know. Um, one thing I was going to say also about the DNA and the, something that we take for granted here with the Southern residents is that I think the Center for Well Research, I can't remember who, has started like personal um, health files, like a doctor's, like a doctor folder on every single one of these animals. And that's insane about how much we know about them. We know where they are every day for the majority of the year their health because we can uh, monitor them with some stuff Sarah's about to talk about that before we interrupted her um, (laughs) from DNA from fecal analysis we have their vocals on um, record we've some of them we've been recording for literally their entire lives we like know their birth month at least if not day I'm Um, having a mind like blown moment that I've never thought about it in this term we know more about many individuals in the southern resident killer whale population than, like, people. Like, yeah. actual human beings yeah. that don't have a, a family doctor. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. Like, the amount of information that I could pull out of my head about J27 or um, 
what, or J26 for some reason. Or L87, like Onyx, especially. Yeah, Onyx. Yeah. Yeah, for some reason, the the boys are coming out. Onyx, Blackberry, and Mike. Um, I don't know why. Those are the ones I could think of first. But, um, yeah, these guys, like, I know so much about them. And I'm not even on the water with them every day. So it's just, it's crazy to think about. And also, again, we take, we just, that's just how our relationship is with these animals. It's so weird. And we have that with humpbacks now, too. We're very lucky to have that with some humpbacks off of our coast. But just thinking about how hard it is to understand animals, marine marine animals in general. But, like, nobody has that kind of relationship with terrestrial animals. Very rarely. Yeah, it's it's still super rare, even with terrestrial animals. I mean, there are some, like, like the longitudinal studies of, like, the um, Jane Goodall project and things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, Um, or something, like, that's on a reserve, like like an elephant rescue rehab kind of thing. But, yeah, it's just, it's so weird that that's just, and it's just a normal thing that we all know about, because that's where we live. Yeah, so how did how do we accumulate all this knowledge? So it started originally just with like telephoto lenses on a boat. Um and then it's expanded into DNA, acoustics, um fecal samples and now um the one of the latest ones that has been really successful here off our coast is a project with Drs. Lance Barrett Leonard, Dr. Holly Fernback and Dr. John Durbin um assessing the body condition of killer whales using a technique called photogrammetry. They basically take a hexacopter drone with a camera on it and take photos of the killer whales from above. They um, have been able to sort of pair the photos from above with the side photos and to figure out who's who. Um, That's like one aspect of that. But then also by looking at them from above, they're able to monitor changes in the health and body condition of individual whales. So they can um, uh, have some long-term monitoring to identify when whales are experiencing nutritional stress. They've also been able to detect when whales are pregnant. Uh, And this um, can help inform fisheries management uh, recommendations as far as um, protecting their their prey species. Uh, There's a CBC news article that has some great drone footage and photos from the Marine Mammal Department at UBC, and we've got that link in the show notes. Um, As well, because things are getting so small, we can put cameras on drones. We can also put all kinds of crazy data loggers on these miniature things that you can stick onto a whale. Biologging is what it's called. And it's basically, it's a temporary um, doohickey that is attached to a whale. (laughs) I don't know. It's like a thing. And it's got data loggers. Yeah. No, honestly, and that's the worst thing. It's like sometimes it is. It is a suction cup. No, it's a suction cup. It is. It's a suction cup cup or it's a thing or it's... Or a thing you gl- I glued random yeah. computer things onto turtles. Like yeah, that's yeah. Sometimes it's what glue. It is. Sometimes it's suction cup. Um, rarely it's like more permanently attached with sort of a kind of like clamped onto their fin or something. But basically, these data loggers can use um, Argos or GPS locations um, to track horizontal and vertical movements in all three axes, and then you can figure out a three D representation of what the tagged animal has been doing when we can't see it. Um, and some are even so advanced that they have a camera on them, which is very cool. Um, yeah, so we've, we're able to collect so much more information about these animals, and then, but also be able to pair it with this historical record that we have going back almost 50 years, um, which is 
amazing and I think is a really great testament and also a great base of knowledge. Obviously, some things about killer whales are very like culturally specific about what individuals do. But in terms of understanding like how populations change or how they grow and shift, um, that's it's so great to have such a long term study, which is such a thing that is missing in so much ecology these days. Yeah, definitely. And it's one of those things like we just went on this we talked about it and we went on this huge tangent about it, about how much we know about these animals. But we also, there's still so much we don't know about these animals that it's kind of insane. Like from whaling records, every all these records that we have from before the 60s are approximations. So we don't actually know what the numbers of southern residents off of our coast, like what the max number has ever been. Like it's, it's, very, it's a very hard number to uh, calculate and like what... You know, when we talk about endangered, the southern residents being endangered, we don't know what the uh, number is that we want them to be. It's hard yeah. to know because we've never known them in, like, the proper super healthy population number. That's not something we've ever experienced and recorded. Like, we've experienced it, but we've never recorded it. So that's something that's really hard to know. And when you know, even when you know literally everything about an individual, we still don't know the goal that we want. We want to save the southern resident killer whales, but we don't know what that looks like. So that makes things really difficult. Um, and we have a long way to go. And it's hard. It's like thinking about it from an individual's perspective. Like, I want to save the southern residents. Okay. And there's lots of different things you can do. And we can talk about those. But from a government perspective, like, what does that look like? How do you set a goal of saving a... Gen- a um, a species or a population or an ecotype that's something that's really hard because you have to put numbers on them and you have to have data and you have to have um, numerical goals and all those kinds of things and it becomes really difficult and thinking about we know so much about these animals but we don't know that so thinking about trying to save other populations of killer whales or other endangered species that we don't know this much about that's why this is so difficult yeah, because save is such a generic thing. Like yeah. to to construct a program about um, like a conservation program, save isn't really the goal. The goal is X exactly number, and you need to know and be able to monitor and adjust as you go um, what that number looks like. So really, even though we have fifty years of data about all these individuals, we're just at the beginning of developing an actual like conservation program for these animals um, or for this population. And the first step is, yeah, setting goals and setting, like, benchmarks of, like, where are we now? Where should we be? Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things of, it's so, we don't even have a lifespan because uh, Granny, there's been, there were records of, of descriptions of dorsal fin that could have been, that could have been J2 in 1911, but we have no way of knowing that that's true. So... She could have been 105 when she uh, was pronounced missing, pr- presumed dead, but she could have been 80. So that's a huge difference. Uh, we have L85, Ocean Sun, who's now definitely, I think, up in her 80s now. And so this could be the one that we get a number. But again, one animal living a long time is not, therefore, that's, yeah, the that's not a range. Population. That's not a range. That's a max. So yeah. Yeah. these are things that we won't know. And it's one of those things that we're not going to know until... The animals that we've complete, we've studied for 50 and then therefore that many more years then do die. 
for Mm -hmm. natural causes. Um, Yeah. And then we can start looking at age ranges. Yeah. And all of our data that we've collected has come from a population that isn't stable. The whole time we've been collecting all this data, they've been being hunted to preserve the fisheries. Their food source has also been being affected there, you know, there has been other like detrimental human activities happening near and around them, which, yeah. So like, we're not even starting this with like perfect data, which obviously mm-hmm. doesn't actually exist, but um, yeah. So that's also something to keep in mind. I think what I appreciate maybe more than ever about killer whales is if we think about the various and many complicated conversations going on in the world right now, while we are recording this podcast and we are not the podcast to get into any of those conversations. Um, but we are all on our own learning journeys and, and trying to get involved and engaged in, in all of these difficult conversations, understanding that I worked and continue to work in environmental education and interpretation and have now for over 15 years. And there are usually, when you meet, whether it's a child or an adult, five main questions that people want to know about any animal. Where does it live? What does it eat? What eats it? How many are there? And how long do they live? And as we have just discussed, not particularly eloquently, <laughs> between this Orca Awareness episode and our last Orca Awareness episode, the answers to all five of those questions that we think when we ask them about any other animal, and I'm guilty of this too when I ask about animals I don't understand as well as I do cetaceans, we think the answers to those questions are easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not so much. really Really not, because if you were to ask any of those five questions about killer whales and not specify the southern residents, it's it's a multi-episode podcast <laughs> that you're going to get. And even when you are specifying an ecotype or a community within an ecotype, like the northern residents versus the southern residents, it's really complicated. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, the world, overarchingly, including our tiny little corner of it with whale tails... It's very complicated, and I think what we can all take from that is just appreciating the shades of gray and the value of asking questions. Yeah, and and the value of listening to the answer when the answer isn't, like, a number, right? Like, if you ask a question that you think has a straightforward answer, like, how long do they live for? And you're expecting something, like, a number that's a flat number. Mm-hmm. And then, but being open to listen to that the answer is complicated and we don't know. And yeah. Yeah, this is why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that'll just help us all be better humans. I think so. Yes. And I think a shade of gray that you can appreciate is to look. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Okay. Everybody I can loves to look. to look. And he looks so cool and different Did now. you look at him? He's I so did. cool. His colors yeah. are changing because he's growing up. Oh, Aww. He's almost he's two. Baby. Oh, my goodness. Wow, time flies. Yes, <laughs> I know. That's crazy. Anyway. So that was another long tangent, but let's uh, wrap that up by saying orcas are threatened. Oh, all of them. Every single one. Um, and we just Ooh, listed a bunch a of reasons answer. why. <laughs> Not yes, with a simple right. solution, but a simple no. answer. Yes. Um, we, just, we just talked about a bunch of reasons why, because we don't know about them and their environments are changing because of humans. But there are a bunch of different things you can do to help orcas, cetaceans, even um, just going down to the local orcas around here. This is the southern residents, the northern residents, and the bigs 
killer whales. And some of those are very simple, like sustainable seafood. Uh, resident killer whales really love Chinook salmon. It takes up almost 90% of their diet because they're incredibly picky eaters, which is not really their fault, but it just seems a little bit annoying on our end. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, a lot of animals in the ocean eat fish, shockingly. So um, when you want to eat fish, there are sustainable seafood options that can help you um, and also help the fisher people off the on the coast um, have better uh, lives uh, because they can fish sustainably and they can still be able to go out and fish because um, the populations haven't been depleted and the animals can still eat what they need to eat and everybody is happy because you have the fish that you want to eat as well. We can uh, all live together. Hooray! So, so there are lots of different uh, ways you can... Uh, help that out including the OceanWise app which tells you which kinds of fish are good to eat which restaurants when you can go eat a re- at a restaurant safely that's a whole other ball of wax um <laughs> then you can go to a restaurant and be safe but also eat fish that are safe and everything will be great um and also fish that you can buy from a grocery store and all of those kinds of things so there'll be links in the show notes and we'll post on social about these apps that you can use to help keep an eye out for that. And one other thing that you can do is minimize your toxins and pollutants. Uh, We have some links on our What You Can Do page on Tales of Saving Whales about some DIY cleaners and stuff you can do. Just minimizing the chemicals that you put down your drain and you have that you have in your life. Uh, That's good for lots of different animals and also for you. Including your budget because most of the ones that you make are going to be cheaper than buying less environmentally friendly ones exactly um so that's a great thing that you can also check out and we'll have all sorts of links that you can look at um find some recipes to help clean your sink better for everybody so now we're all orca aware (laughs) i feel like i want a badge maybe we should put that in place for next next year next year orca awareness i want a badge that says i am orca aware teespring (laughs) Teespring just launched badges. Ooh, well, maybe that'll be something that we offer in particular to our patrons. Ooh. We did, I didn't even plan that. That just <laughs> came about naturally. Amazing segue. Which, that's also the second time I've said that today. Go me. <laughs> Amazing. We did want to take a moment to sincerely thank our patrons for their continued support of everything that we do at whale tales thank you all so 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 much if you are curious what a patreon is uh patreon is a service ours is at patreon.com slash whale where you for as little as a dollar a month can support your favorite creators uh doing things like making podcasts or creating music or writing books all kinds of stuff we're up there um to help uh cover the costs of hosting a podcast and a website and um any um, contribution you make uh, gives you fun rewards that Lindsay's going to tell you about. Yes, but I'm not going to go on a whole spiel because somehow I got all the long spiels today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we do have three different tiers and they are very wittingly called the porpoise, dolphin, and whale tiers. Oh, oh. it's like we're giant cetacean nerds. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so we do have different levels that you can give out $1 a month, $5 a month, and $10 a month, and you get different rewards, including a weekly newsletter, some discounts on our merch, which do not include badges, but might one day, um, a postcard with our logo painted on it lovingly by Nicole, um, or at $10 a month, you can get the option to produce one of our fun flipper facts, which would be really cool thing if you really wanted us to talk about a super super specific thing um we love diving into super specific weird things and learning new things about cetaceans so please join our patreon and tell us what we should learn about because it'd be fascinating for everybody and nicole would get really excited about it. <laughs> I, would. I would i am a nerd i'm a proud nerd and i can't wait to dive into your fun flipper facts <laughs> becoming a patron if this is something that that you are able to do and we of course understand this is not something that all of you are interested or able in doing it is it is the greatest thing you can do to support us truly because as we've said before all three of us do have other full-time jobs sometimes multiple other full-time jobs that we have to pay our rent and mortgages and take care of our families and this just continues to be the greatest labor of love for all of us so anything that you can do to help support what we're doing at Whale Tales. We just wanted to send the biggest two meter or six feet away virtual hug to all of our existing patrons because Yay. you are awesome. All right. Does everyone know what time it is? Yes, I do. It's <laughs> time for fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fun flipper fact. Today's fun flipper fact is shockingly all about orcas. Um, and this one really is sort of like the epitome of a super random fun flipper fact. There is not a lot known about this fact. It is just a fact. And I wanted to show, throw it out there because it's one of the things that I sort of first learned about killer whales. And we know, and that was a long time ago because I started studying killer whales when or learning about them and asking questions about them when I was four. And we still today many years later, more than 30 years later, basically know exactly the same amount about this one fact. And that Nicole is... Nicole just counted on her hands how old she was. <laughs> and the fact is that northern resident killer whales, so for once, we're not talking about the southern resident killer whales, northern resident killer whales and only northern resident killer whales, to our knowledge, have a unique thing that they do. I don't even know what to call it because behavior. behavior, that's right. But we don't know like it's not it's not any particular kind of behavior because we don't know why they do it. So it's not necessarily just a social behavior or sort of like a a physical behavior. They have a thing or a behavior they do called rubbing. Now, before all of you go into a more Fifty Shades of Grey style <laughs> thought pattern, they're they're rubbing their bodies along rubbing beaches. So these are special places where the geography and sort of rock makeup or substrate makeup of the ocean is just like all perfect conditions are met for what northern residents are looking for from a rubbing beach. They want it to be shallow, like sometimes less than two meters deep, one and a half to two meters deep, which when again we talk about the size of a killer whale that is very, very, very shallow. They want a nice slope 
under the water so that they can get shallow, but the slope is always going to be taking them deeper so that they don't accidentally beach themselves. And the substrate itself, the rocks on the rubbing beach, need to be very small, like fingernail size small, and round and pebbly is kind of the best way to describe it. Less sandy, less like rocky, just very, very smooth, pebbly. And when they find these sort of perfect conditions, they will, as a group, all head into these shallows and rub as much of their bodies as they can along the rocks and they do it together and we have been able to and there will be a link in the show notes that I'm sure we'll send we'll share on social as well mm. some pretty just spectacular videos that people who are lucky enough to time their visits to these rubbing beaches perfectly have been able to take of this rubbing behavior but we don't know why they do it and there's no predictability to it it's not sort of like a every first week of june it's rubbing beach time (laughs) which is probably good from a visibility standpoint you know it's not it's it's special when you get to see this it is not something that you can predict and i love that i love that there's mystery (laughs) out there still Mm. much mystery but i i do love that this particular fun flipper fact is just something that is just really cool and special and awesome and you know I maybe will even be okay even as nerdy as I am loving to get to the bottom of of all the fun flipper facts I'll be okay if we never really know why they do this I just think it's cool that they do whales get to have secrets too yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I gotta say like we thought you know like we talked about residents being picky about eating chinook like northerns definitely win with the picky divaness like i will only eat chinook salmon and that beach better have tiny ass perfectly round rocks <laughs> otherwise i am not rubbing on it oh hell no like yeah no insufficient these, these, those rocks are too big those rocks are too small yeah exactly they're the goldilocks of uh cetaceans <laughs> it's just red. <laughs> And Man. all this talk about um, northern residents uh, rubbing on beaches leads us perfectly into our story. <laughs> My neighbors across the street have a whale tale that they are sharing with us today because uh, they are very, very lucky to have been able to actually see this rubbing behavior. So take it away, neighbors. Hi, my name is Kim and I'm from North Delta, B.C., uh, last year in mid-August, we were at our family cabin, which is at a place called Savory Island, which Savory is kind of right at the very northern end of the Sunshine Coast, right across from Lund, and that puts you right at the entrance to Desolation Sound. So we see a great deal of marine life when we are up there. Uh, last year, however, in late August, we saw something really unique. Uh, the tide had been a really low tide and it was on its way in, but it was still quite a ways out. And we were sitting on the beach and we were looking across um, at Hernando Island. And when the tide is out and it's super low, sometimes there can be as little as five feet of water in between the two islands. So it's not uh, it's not a place that most boats will come to unless they're pretty sure of the water depth. Um, there's also a bar that comes well out of Hernando, and I guess what was happening was these this group of orcas, I'd say five to eight of them, 
they were kind of playing around and at first we thought they were beached and then we realized they were actually doing this on purpose. And you could see them kind of launching up uh, onto the sandbar and they would roll over and they would flap their fins and it looked like they were rubbing their backs and then rubbing their bellies and just having a jolly old time, quite honestly. So we sat there for about 45 minutes and watched them play. And once the tide came in to the point where they weren't really able to get onto the sandbar anymore, they kind of went on their merry little way. But it was a really unique experience. We don't often see orcas in the area. It's more um, humpback whales that we see. And even when we do see an orca, it's usually only a couple of them transiting through. We don't see a great big group of them like that. And this wasn't something that I realized they did. But they sure had a good time. Uh, playing and it was just a really unique experience and I'm super glad I got a chance to experience it. Oh man, Ugh. that is so jealous. <laughs> so incredible. Thank you so much guys for sharing that story with us. You can read this story as well as 400 other, four, over 400 other more stories about orcas on whale tails. Uh, they shockingly are the most uh, submitted stories on our website. I can't imagine why. Oh, why? Uh, <laughs> I never would have guessed. <laughs> Uh, so we got lots. And that brings us to the end of our episode. As always, we would really love to hear your thoughts on this or any episode. So please visit our website at whale-tales.org and find links to all our various social media handles so you can drop us a line. You can also tweet at us directly if you are so inclined. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah, no H, K given. And Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. You can head to our website to subscribe to our website, check out our merchandise, and learn more about supporting us and becoming a patron on Patreon. And while you're there, you can read over 800 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. And of course, if you have seen a cetacean in the ocean, we would love to add your story to our library. Click the share link on our site or contact us on social media at whaletales.org or email us a voice memo, just like my neighbors did, and tell us all about your incredible encounter. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. We will be back on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts and cetacean trivia. Thanks, everybody. And as always, have a whaley great day.